Well, Merry Christmas again, family. And welcome to the Springs. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs, and I appreciate you joining us on this nice and cozy snuggle morning. Uh, our first big cold front, praise the Lord. So it's time to snuggle together in church and be warmed by the power of God's word here. Uh, we are in a two-week series. This is the last of two weeks, a series called Advent. Again, Advent means the coming. And we wait together on the coming of Jesus Christ, as the Bible foretells. Now, specifically, we're talking about the foretelling and the prophetic writing of the start of Isaiah, especially. Last week, we talked about waiting on God's promise. Today, it's all about waiting together. Now, if only we here in the Lone Star Republic could wait together on God's promise and on who God is and trust in him the same way we, we you know, wait here together on that perfect holiday brisket, you know, the perfect smoke. If we could just have that sort of patience in waiting together on God, that would be a pretty worthy milestone, right? At least like that. So we're going to wait, talk about waiting together. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet together. And again, this is the last t- chance to get snugly warm, maybe move your seats to someone, clo- be closer to someone else. We, uh, we're in Isaiah 7 last week. This week we move mostly to Isaiah 9. We'll be in 8 a little bit, but I'm going to start off by reading Isaiah 9 verses 2 through 7. Here we go. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel For the fire, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, remember this is the child, his name, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7 Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts of armies will do this. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray together. God, thank you for your word, for your promise, for light from your word that enables us to truly be together as we wait on the audacious and wonderful and transcendent things that you promise as we wait for those things to manifest right here and now. And we celebrate what you're already done and what is sure to culminate on forever and ever and ever worship of the light you've given us. Worship of you. 
Worship of Jesus, the light of the world. Help us today where we are to approach your light as we dig into your word. Amen. I want to encourage you as you, maybe you have traditions like our family where we read verses from the Bible in a special way in the Advent season. We have daily readings. If not, start doing that tradition. It's a wonderful tradition. If you're like me, maybe there's verses you are familiar with. Maybe you've kind of heard at church here and there. And you look and you read and you you realize, oh my gosh, this stuff is really in here. This promise was really given centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This is kind of uncomfortably specific as thoughts that I have when I read through some of these verses. How could this be denied? Thoughts like that arise. And my encouragement to you is to to not grow so familiar with what you think you know about God's word that you fail to continue to dig into it and be illuminated again with how amazing God's word is. So dig into it and be surprised all over again. I hope this surprises you, the verses we're reading. Because it is wonderful and amazing and strange that seven centuries before Jesus was born, now I said last week, uh, four centuries, um, I got that wrong, as I do from time to time. Uh, Seven centuries before Christ was born, this sort of specificity and strangeness was spoken by the mouth of the prophet and written down in Isaiah 9. Verse 6 is a real strange phrase that it starts off with. I'm going to read this phrase. For to us a child is born. This little phrase here, I believe serves as a resolution and a surprise plot twist, not only for this passage we read, and not only for the book of Isaiah, and not only for the Bible itself, but I believe for all of human history, this for to us a child is born is a surprise plot twist. And we have to consider what us is and the implications of this particular child in human history. Center point of the Bible is this pinnacle of this child. Turning point of history is who we are and who we've become by our sin. And yet, to us, a child is born. For to us, a child is born. And here's what I want to do this morning with our time remaining. I want to shed more light on this whole passage that we've read and a little bit of uh, scripture before, right before this passage we read. And I want to use this phrase as a framework for how I want to communicate. For to us, a child is born. Can everyone say that? For to us, a child is born. You're pretty much preaching my message there. I'm going to take this one phrase at a time, starting with for to us, and I'll get to the second part of this phrase as I go through this. But first of all, for to us. Now, I'm going to give you my own observation as I read these uh, Isaiah 9 and even Isaiah 8. Just something I notice. Okay? I notice that there's a lot of us and we language in chapter 9 as it approaches the pinnacle of this mystery of this great promise for telling Jesus. Before this, there wasn't as much, and if you look at chapter 8, 
There's a little bit more I language. Verse 16, Isaiah says, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, verse 17 says, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children the Lord has given me are signs. Now, I only say that this is simply my observation because we do know that this was a really dark time in Israelite history. The nation had completely turned their backs on God. They stopped waiting on the Lord and they started waiting on other things. And if you were Isaiah, you were one of what seemed like almost no one following Jesus, waiting on God, the God of Israel, following God. You would have felt really alone waiting on God in the context of a culture that were waiting on other things besides God, turning their backs on God, going to other things, seeking out other mediums. I can only imagine how alone Isaiah felt when he was waiting on God. I want to ask you this. Have you ever felt alone when you wait on God's promise? When you place your hope in God, in the context of a culture, maybe it's different than Israel, uh, 7th century, 8th century BC, but what's very similar is that we too have a culture where so many people tend to wait on other things, place their trust and their hope and, and their comfort in other things besides the promises of God. All of us have been there, and for us in this culture today, to wait on the promises of God. Oftentimes, you can feel alone, have you not? Have you felt alone ever as you wait on God, as you uh, go to work and you put Him before anyone else? Sometimes when you gather together with your family for the holidays and there's so many other things being celebrated and you wait on God and you celebrate God, does it ever feel lonely to you? Is it ever a struggle? Well, I want to promise you, I don't, I don't know what Isaiah is feeling, so that's why I give these disclaimers. This is my observation. But I do know that Isaiah was pushing through a particular darkness of his nation to wait on God and to receive this revelation of God God himself being born as a child to us. And I do know this, with your struggle, as you wait on, the God in the, on God in the place that you are, you can struggle or you can struggle well. Struggling versus struggling well means struggling well is struggling in the contra- context of other people who are also pushing back darkness and struggling with the various forms of human depravity like you are. And because the child has been born to us and we celebrate his light, we're not just in darkness, we we have light and we're pushing back darkness. And sometimes that's messy, sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it might feel lonely, but you don't have to be alone. You can struggle in the midst of other people that share your struggle, share the fight to push back the darkness and to enjoy the light. Romans 12 says, we rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep. So sometimes you can struggle, but you never have to struggle alone. We can wait on God together. Now, I want to to bring context to what he talks about in verse 9. Look at some of the verses moving forward in chapter 8. Verse 19 says, When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not the people inquire of their God, Isaiah says? 
Should they not inquire? Why would they inquire on the dead on behalf of the living? The teaching, on God's teaching, his testimony. They don't speak, these saying the other people around me who tend to wait on other things in our culture besides God's promise, they don't, they don't wait on God's word. It's because they have no dawn. See, Isaiah is saying here, people are seeking necromancers, essentially psychics. And it's reminiscent of our day. We, we might, maybe if we don't seek psychics, we still seek humanly wisdom, perennial things and other things like Oprah or uh, the Cowboys or the Ravens or the football or the, all the other things that we can tend to turn to to bring light. I had to throw the Ravens in there. <laughs> the point is this. Why do all of us, why have we tended to seek other things for context, to, to bring ourselves, to give ourselves the answers that only waiting on God together should give? It says here, because they had no dawn, meaning the light had not yet shone on these people. Why is it that we tend, if the light has shone on us, we tend to have so much less patience for people where the light has yet to shine on them, they're still darkened by their own understanding. And yet it seems for me at least, and you can be honest with yourself, where I tend to have so much less patience like with my family members who just don't know any better yet because they haven't yet had their dawning. The light has not yet dawned on their souls yet. And so often... I can simultaneously, this is so sad, celebrate how God has completely transformed my life and and shown his light on me. And at the same time, get mad at friends and family members who his light has not yet illuminated. Why is that? People are messed up because people are people and full of darkness like all of us once were before our dawning. All these things, necromancers, waiting on other things besides God, the feeling of loneliness as you're pushing back darkness, this happens because there is a light that needs to be shown. That's why it gets to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I've never consulted a psychic or a necromancer But there was a way when I was younger where I waited on sports and my social interactions to to essentially be the light for me, to define me, to give me my identity. I remember going to school and trying to gain my affirmation and identity and definition from the friends around me and my performance in, in sports or school or choir, all the things that I wanted to define me that just couldn't. And I would see momentary flickers of light, but I was walking in darkness. We are made to bring light into darkness, not to go into the darkness to to gain our definition and our identity. And yet there's been years that even since Jesus transforming my life as a young man, I have momentarily gone back to worldly systems and, and worldly affirmation and what other people think about me, to, I've gone essentially to the darkness to try to gain my light and my definition and my identity. And it's at times like this where I can stop, slow down, especially around the Christmas season, and read these amazing verses and remember 
that I was once one without a dawn. I was once the one who was consulting the modern day necromancers, consulting the world, the darkness to gain my own light. And it wasn't working out for me. And even now when I, I'm pushing back darkness with the light that God's giving me and, and I am pushing against uh, worldly systems and people that I tend to be impatient with uh, in my, my friends and family that have not yet had their dawning, how often do I need to just stop and remember what life was like before the light shone upon me? What about you? What was darkness like to you? Before God intervened with his light in your life, if indeed you've, you've seen the dawning of his light really overtake your being and make you a new person, can you stop and remember what life was like before Jesus entered in with his light and made sense out of things? Remember C.S. Lewis says, I love Jesus and the Bible and Christianity not just because it's the light but that I see, but it's because of by it I see everything else. Do you remember what life was like before you saw? Can you stop and remember? I want to tell you this. You in life, like me, have to daily struggle together with others, waiting on God's promise, pushing back the darkness. Hatred. Worry, fear. We push it back with the light of God. But sometimes the best thing to do is to stop and remember how before I was pushing back the darkness, I was the darkness. And God's light shone on me. A people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For to us, a child is born. Check this out. It doesn't say for to me, a child is born. It says, for to us. Now, your present day community that God has given you is the context for you to grow in the light of God and to push back the darkness. I want to remind you of our our church's mission statement. We exist to help people grow in being followers of Christ, family focused, and fishers of men. Again, we help people not necessarily just individuals, but the, the collective group of enlightened individuals. We are a people. Why are we a people? It's because the child who was born to us has set us free from the darkness and made us his, given us his light. And now we are a people. First Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. So now we're a people because of the person that we're following, the child that was promised and that was delivered, born to us. Now we are a people. And look around you a minute. This helps your worship of the the glorious one. Look how beautiful this people is that you're a part of. Remember, people are looking at you too and, and, and enjoying the beauty of God. Once you were not a people, now we are a people growing in being followers of Christ. And now, because of the one we're following who was born unto us, we truly are family. And we can have context in in his word that we grow in to help us to not waste our natural family experience and our spiritual family experience. 
And we're fishers for men because we're bringing others into his family and seeing the dawning of his light on others. What a glorious experience that we celebrate. All because a child was born to us. To us, a child is born. Now, that's why we come together on Sundays. Do you know that you could stay home on Sundays? You could download your favorite preacher. Uh, You could listen to your favorite Christian music. And you know what? Let me tell you this. That would be good in quality. you You could gain a lot out of that. But listen, that is not church. That's not church. Church is experiencing all that we're waiting on and all that God is delivering together. We come together to grow under the preaching of God's word. We come together to sing. We go to growth groups to go deeper into God's word and to pray for one another and to see the redemption that God is manifesting in, other, in different lives together. We see the promise asked for for weeks and delivered in, in the following weeks and we get to experience that joy in growth groups. We get to experience collective joy on Sundays. Last week, we, were, uh, we had a, uh, many of y'all know, we, we uh, lend out our facility, rent out our facility to a Russian congregation who meets here on Sunday afternoons. And uh, last Sunday, our established class was going on in the established lounge out here. And there's about 10 or 15 of us uh, going through our last study. And we could hear the singing of this Russian congregation. And at one point, because I wasn't teaching this lesson, I went around to just kind of see what song they were singing, and I wanted to see the words, and I couldn't read the words. I couldn't even pronounce the phonetics because it was all in Cyrillic, you know. Uh, But the sound of people singing together, it wasn't the sound of a band uh, necessarily, like the way we do things. Uh, They've been given access to all of our equipment and stuff, but they prefer to use less so that they can hear one another. And let me tell you, it was a beautiful sound. And let me tell you this too, as it relates to us, we have the most beautiful worship team that I've ever heard. And we can give a hand to our worship team. But I want you to know who you just gave a hand to. Because I'm not only giving a hand to our worship team that typically tends to sing up here, but our worship team who sings out here too. And our worship team who serves our kids is our worship team too. The, the, why do they come? Do they, do they come back here and serve back there so that, uh, so that we could worship God? Or do they go back there because that's part of their worship for God? We come together on Sundays, not just to put on a show, but because we're together we're waiting on God and seeing his promise unveiled together and we're seeing his light spread through us because for to us a child is born we serve on Sunday together we participate in growth groups together we generously give unto the Lord help me out here together we wait on God's promise together for to us next A child is born. Now check this out. Verse 2 of chapter 9 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Now, I've seen people cherry-pick the Bible before, and this is one of the verses I've seen. Uh, someone take it out of context and apply the light to some other random thing. But it clarifies what the light is in the darkness in verse 6. What's the light that the people in darkness, which is all humans, experience? Verse 6, for to us, a child is born. The light in the darkness is a child. A child, a person, not an idea, not, not a thought. And this is especially important because many of us don't realize that our, our world's thinking on this, on this contrast between a person and an idea, the way we tend to think without knowing it comes from the enlightenment. Uh, the, after the printing press, after the reformation, the, the centuries kind of after the 15th, 16th, 1700s, around there, the Enlightenment largely came into Europe from the Dark Ages, if you will, from the, from the Middle Ages. The Enlightenment happened because individual reasoning and logic was, uh, was kind of given an ability once again. There was a time where in the, in the Dark Ages, only the, the, the few who had books could could define the thoughts, the, the, especially in the church. Just the few priests who had access to written Bibles could come up with the thoughts of what everyone was supposed to think, essentially. And after the Enlightenment, there was so many different ideas being out there. And essentially, the focus on humanity was this, that we all need to have our own thoughts, and we need to judge ideas with our own reasoning. And how many of y'all believe that liberating people to think on their own is a good thing? But the dark side of the Enlightenment is that when you liberate people from an orthodoxy, from a, from a tradition that we've gained and we've experienced the light of God together, when you liberate someone from one person's sin and from a whole system of sin, they're still left alone to their own sin and their own foolishness. And that would be the story of the dark side of the last several centuries. The Enlightenment wasn't just uh, a, a thing that, that was meant to bring, in my, my opinion, from God it wasn't me- meant to just bring us the ability to think on our own and our own sin. We need to have a fresh look at the Bible and the glory of God together. And it's God's glory and his light that gives us the ability to be together and to have common traditions together. For to us, a child is born. Let me remind you who this child is. Let me give you some context for what this child does. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden, the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken on the day of Midian. The day of Midian, remember, this is reminiscent of Judges 6 and 7. If you remember, Gideon and his army overtook the Midianites. Do you remember how they did it? Did they have a superior idea or a superior army? No, they waited on God together. And then God miraculously defeated the army. They just waited together. No human being could receive glory for how Midian was defeated. So when it says here, for the yoke of his burden, all the burdens of the evil empires will be overthrown as on the day of Midian. What it's saying to us is that all the things that you're waiting on, that you're needing God to do on your behalf. God is saying, I'm going to help you do some things. I'm going to help you straighten up your ways. But really, if you just wait on me, 
I'm going to do everything on your behalf. The light's going to come into your life all through this child who is born. Verse 5, every boot of tramping and warrior in tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel in the fire. There's a day where every war will cease. All armies will be defeated. Violence will end. That's a progressive promise that can only come because a person of peace, his dominion will continue to grow and overwhelm violence and oppression. My daughter is reading this book in her, uh, in her schooling that I'm reading with her called the, the, the Story of the World. And we're getting to read this book. What's fascinating to me is seeing all the different empires rise and fall and nations rising up. And there's so many of them, especially in modern history, different nations and empires rising up to power. And so many of these nations have risen up essentially thinking that they were defending the oppressor. Revolutions that have come in, whether it's uh, ancient Christian nations in the, in the Middle Ages, Christian nations or, uh, or communist nations in Cuba or USSR, nations that have risen and fallen in futility and vanity. But the promise of this child and what will be born of him and the light that will never be put out from him is this, that he is powerful and of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's what we can wait on together. What kind of child is this? Verse six, for to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, his name shall be called, remember, This is a child that it's talking about. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I've heard people say before that the Bible, this is different people from different sects, uh, say that the Bible doesn't necessarily say that Jesus claims to be God. I mean, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, right? We have a paradigm for something, for a human, what a human is, and we have a paradigm for what, what, what a God is. It's definitely something other than human, right? But, but to think that there's a point in time where God and man, there was one God and one man, and he was the same person, that's strange. And so people will say things like, oh, well, the Bible doesn't really say that. It's just kind of Christians have twisted the meaning. Look, seven centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this verse, a child who is mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. What an audacious, strange promise. And the strange thing we wait on is that this sort of light has come into the world. In the person of Jesus, if you draw near to him, He's self-verifying. If you read his word, you draw near to him, you'll see the mystery of a child that is God. Verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so I want to ask you a personal question as we draw to a close. Is the increase of his government and his peace 
being manifest in your life, in your heart, in your soul? Is the peace of Jesus a progressive reality in your thinking? I want you to just evaluate yourself, the things that you've tended to worry about the last several weeks or whatever. Now, if not, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to walk out of here as a bunch of individuals saying, you know what, the increase of his government and his peace, it's not, in my li- it's not happening better and better and better in my life. I better go fix that. I'm going to walk out of the church building and go think about it and fix it on my own. That is not what, what's meant to happen here. Because of what Jesus has done and because of how the light of God draws us together, we can confess our sin and our weakness to God and we can receive his grace and his sustenance right where we are. And we can together wait on him in the midst of our weakness and wait on the promise of his increasing peace in our lives.